knelt beside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head of the other and at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying, the angels had asked. Because they have taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying, Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was a gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go to him. Mary, Jesus said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabini, which in Hebrew means, Hebrew means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go, find my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Tina. Tina Thomas. In 33 AD, when uh, Jesus was still walking around on this planet, there were about 120 followers of Jesus Christ. Not that many. And they multiplied from an original 12 followers during his three and a half year ministry to about 120 people. You remember there were about 120 waiting in the upper room as they waited for the Spirit to come. Today, uh, 2,000 years later, 2.3 billion followers of Jesus Christ, 2.3 billion people who say, I believe Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He was the Son of God. He died for my sins. He rose three days later after his death. He's coming back one day. 2.3 billion Christians. That's one out of, every, three, out of every three people on the planet. Wow. What happened? How did something grow from this little small group of, of 12 Jewish fishermen, basically, to the largest organization on planet Earth? How do you explain that explosive growth? What is the reason for the growth? Well, it all comes down to one particular event in history. What's amazing to me is that Jesus Christ never wrote anything down, never wrote a book, never wrote a letter. More books, though, have been written about Jesus Christ than any other subject in the history of mankind, bar none. None even come a, second, a close second. More books about Jesus than any other topic. He never wrote any songs. He never composed any music. More music has been written about Jesus Christ than any other subject combined, put together. The greatest music over the last 2,000 years is granted to be written by the church in all different styles of music. He never built any statues, but more art has been dedicated to the subject of Jesus Christ than anything else in all of history. And think about this. Jesus never traveled more than 200 miles from his home uh, during his earthly ministry. Yet today you can find followers of Jesus Christ in every nook and cranny of the planet. Why? One out of every three people on the planet. What happened? A moment in history changed it all. The resurrection. The resurrection changed everything. And it is the single most important event in history. 
In fact, we split our history by this event. Everything is graded, either A.D. or B.C., uh, on the event of the resurrection. Even your birthday, Anna's birthday, is dated in relationship to the resurrection of Jesus. When we say 2017, from what? The reference point is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It literally split history into A.D. and B.C. And John's gospel says it so very clearly. So early it was still dark uh, uh, outside and Mary Magdalene was on her way to visit the tomb of Jesus. She loved him so much that she just wanted to be there. She had not gone on Saturday, but now it was Sunday. Passover was complete. She had to go. Nothing could restrain her from getting to that tomb, even if she couldn't get to see his body. She was probably saying to herself, if only he hadn't gone to Jerusalem during this time of trouble. If only his disciples would have been a little more careful and they would have hidden him somewhere else. If only there wasn't this tumult going on in the empire right now. If only. Mary was probably trying to do in her mind uh, what all of us try to do at some point or another. And that is to reverse the past to go backward in the story. <laughs> Do you ever have any video replays in your mind? That's where some of you uh, maybe are reviewing some thoughts today about the past. Did you ever ask the question, what if? What if? Some of you I know have, have parts of your story that are incredibly difficult. What if? What if? You're saying to yourself, if only I hadn't been fiddling with that crazy radio in the car that one moment. If only I hadn't gotten to the party that night. If only I hadn't taken his advice. Some of you may have questions in your mind. You have an image of something that you would love to reverse, you would love to erase. And some of you say, well, I've never had that moment. But no doubt you will. Because all of us will one day find ourselves hearing the whirring of machines around us, the beeping of monitors, the pulling of ventilators, the rustling of cords. All of us will experience what we cannot imagine now and the fear that we're slipping out into the journey of the unknown, death. They tell us that the moment before that happens, they say your life flashes before your eyes. I don't know if that's true. But I know this, if, it is, if it's true, it's possibly because we're asking if we could return, if we could do it over again, if we could have a redo. Every human being asks the question because your little story and my little story is part of a much longer, a much older, a much bigger, and a much deeper story telling us the things around us just aren't right. The story in Genesis 3 is a story of something that's wrecked, something that went wrong at a garden at a point in history, a wreck that you and I have then repeated in all of our lives. So the wreck of Genesis 3 is the wreck of our lives. And this woman named Mary thinks that she's facing a personal crisis. She winds up in the garden. 
But scripture reminds us what she's facing here isn't just a personal crisis. She's facing an ancient story. She's facing a story of sin and fallenness. And she is the first one on the scene to witness how God's going to deal with Genesis chapter 3. She has the favor of God to be the first on the scene to notice what God was up to. And just to say, I love that. I love that God honors her to be the first person, the first woman to announce the big news. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. That's John 20, verse 1. The stone had been rolled away. If you've ever been to Joshua National, uh, Joshua Tree National Park in California, you have viewed some very large stones. It's an amazing place to visit. The landscape, I imagine, must be like the landscape of the moon. It's crazy. In this small geographical area is the most unusual rock formations you'll ever see, I think, on the planet. And they're monstrous. This tomb, or this stone, that covered the entrance of the tomb was massive. It was very large, probably somewhat circular in shape, and it was shoved or rolled into the place in front of the tomb. Because the last thing the religious authorities wanted was to have some body-snatching thief who would take the, the body and then these Christians would come along and pronounce that he'd been raised from the dead. So it was a massive stone. It was somewhat sealed and a guard was posted to prevent any intrusion. Now I'm not sure what Mary was expecting when she got to the garden tomb knowing that a big stone had been rolled in front but nevertheless she came. And the other gospel writers include that other women came as well. It may be that Mary Magdalene arrived first and discovered that the stone had been rolled away. Now we look at the stone being rolled away as a good thing. That was not the mind of Mary who was thinking the tomb's been vandalized. Not only is Jesus dead, but the grave has been desecrated. Of course, we look at this event from a long ways back, and we've heard it so often. But imagine returning to the grave of a close friend of yours, or maybe a family member of yours, just a couple of days after the funeral. And as you approach the burial site, just to kind of put fresh flowers out, you see that the dirt's been moved back from the grave. And you see that the coffin is above the ground now. It's, it's, it's open, and the body is missing. Naturally, you would feel just absolutely shocked and violated. My brother experienced uh, a break-in at their home a few months ago. <sighs> and they were, they were away. They'd been away for some time. And then they got the phone call that their, their house had been vandalized. And not just a little bit, but badly vandalized. And a lot of stuff stolen, including a vehicle. Uh, and it's just... They're still sorting out the insurance on this. It's, it's a terrible feeling of being violated, intruded upon. But how much more a grave of a loved one 
that has been vandalized. You know, every time Jesus talked about his death, he also talked about his resurrection. But in the chaos of the moment, it's not easy to remember the good part of the story. We only can see the hard part. Author uh, Joe Bailey buried three sons. Three sons. Such tragedy. The last was his five-year-old son. And the day after burying his son, who had died of leukemia, he paid a visit to the doctor who had been so kind to the Bailey family the nine months between diagnosis and death. And he wrote a book called A View from the Hearse. And the doctor's secretary uh, beckoned to, to me, as I, he said, as I approached the desk. Uh, she didn't say, uh, the doctor will see you now. Instead, she looked at a little boy playing on the floor. And, he, and Joe Bailey said, in my preoccupation and my grief, I had failed to notice that there even were others in the waiting room. She spoke quietly. Uh, he has the same problem your little boy had. I, I sat down next to the little boy's mother. We were far enough away from him and we talked softly so the little boy couldn't hear us. I said, it's hard bringing him in here every couple of weeks for their tests. Hard, she said, hard. I die every time. And now, now he's beginning to sense that something's wrong. Her voice trailed off. It's good to know, isn't it? I spoke slowly that even though the medical outlook is hopeless and we can be sure that after our child dies that he will be completely removed from sickness and suffering and everything like that and he will be completely well and happy. <laughs> the woman said, if only I could believe that, but I don't. When he dies, I'll just have to cover him up with dirt and forget that I ever had him. She turned back to her little boy to watch her son play with a little car. I said, I'm glad I don't feel that way. I wanted to leave her alone with her apprehension. I, I wanted to be alone myself to grieve. I didn't want to talk, but I was compelled to speak. Why? She didn't look at me. Well, because we covered our little boy up with dirt yesterday afternoon. And I'm here to thank the doctor for his kindness. <laughs> you seem like a rational person. She was looking straight at me now. How can you possibly believe that the death of a little boy or, or an adult is any different than the death of an animal? How can you possibly believe that? Yeah, how can you possibly believe that? The answer lies in history. 2,000 years ago, when Mary went to a tomb that was empty. Jesus coming into our world and giving his life on a cross to take our sins and to give us hope and a future with him forever. And it all comes down to a stone being rolled away from a tomb. The stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let us in so that we might see something that we've never seen before and we will never forget it and we will believe. 
So Mary ran and, he, and found Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, John. Listen to her heart. They've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. Not a moment's hesitation with Peter and John. They're soon in a foot race to see who gets to the empty tomb first. Maybe John's a little bit younger, maybe a little bit more fit. Maybe he's doing some half marathons, we're not sure. But he's a stronger runner than Peter. He gets to the graveside first. He doesn't go into the tomb. He just looks in and he sees the strips of linen lying there. When Simon Peter pulls up alongside of John, he doesn't hesitate because he's Peter. He goes right into the tomb, and as soon as he does that, John follows him into the tomb. Now, it's interesting. John was the first one to arrive on the scene. He peered into the tomb area. He observed without necessarily understanding. We can look at a lot of things in life on this level. We see it. We walk by it, but we don't think about it too much. It only requires the work of our eyes. I'm supposed to take a pill at a certain time each day at supper time. I take the pill so repetitively that while I do it, I'm hardly aware that I've done it. And five minutes later, I say to myself, did I really take that pill or not? Is this just me that does this? Do you ever do that? Should I take another one just in case? John saw the initial evidence, but it didn't really compute. It just, okay, but it just didn't register. It was just a glance. Peter, when he arrives on the scene, goes right into the tomb, and he too saw the linen wrappings lying there. He noticed them. He noticed also the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. There is a deeper level of observation going on. He's studying the scene. This is like a CSI episode. The scene is under thorough examination. What happened here? It looks like nothing is disturbed. It looks like the body has been sucked up, removed from the wrappings which are still in place, and then very unusual, the cloth that covered the head of Jesus was neatly folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Wow. Wow, what's that? But then John also went in and he saw precisely what Peter saw. And this time it says he saw and believed. For until then they hadn't understood the scripture that said Jesus must rise from the dead. This is quite a different look. It means to grasp the meaning of something so as to understand it. I get it. I get it. Have you ever had some of those revelations in life where you've been trying to figure something out and all of a sudden, I see it. I get it. Isn't it great when you, when you just kind of like, ah, John got it. Interesting progression. First of all, a more casual glance, then a more studied approach, and then real insight and clarity. It clicks. John saw and he believed and it became a heart experience. It became something of the heart. A German theologian by the name of Wolfhart Pannenberg once said, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. 
First, it's a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, if you really believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. It just follows. So the camera sweeps back to Mary Magdalene. Don't you love how God honored Mary? Uh, Mary has been incorrectly portrayed as a woman of the streets who turned her life around as she met Jesus. But that's really not a scriptural position of Mary. Uh, what we do know is that she was the one who came to know Jesus, came to love him, and really was a supporter of his ministry financially. Luke chapter 8, if you want to follow that. Mary Magdalene was deeply invested in the mission of Jesus. She couldn't wait for Sunday to come so she could be close to him, even though she knew he was dead. But regardless, I mean, just to be close, just to be there, just to be in proximity of the tomb, she, she had to. She loved him so much. Peter and John obviously had already left, and here she was, maybe still unaware of what had happened. Mary still thought that Jesus was dead. She sits there weeping, broken inside. Uh, Mary's weeping was the loud lamentation that is characteristic of Jewish people when they express their sorrow. It's dramatic. God gave Mary an unusual experience. I love this too. Not just one, but two angels. One at the head and the other at the foot of where the body had been lying. It's unusual, as our staff pointed out when we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, that she was not disturbed at seeing these men. And maybe she didn't even realize they were angels. I don't know. Or maybe she was so in grief that she wasn't, she wasn't feeling it. She wasn't afraid. So maybe she didn't really know. That, that, that God had sent to her angelic beings and, and, and they were asking her, why are you weeping? She couldn't see that the question was meant to refocus her thinking, but all she could say was, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have put him. They've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've put him. Mary turned from the tomb to notice someone standing nearby and with a short glance addressed a man she assumed to be the caretaker or the gardener. And Jesus repeats the angel's question, why are you weeping? No doubt again, a question to refocus Mary. She didn't recognize Jesus. And thinking it was the gardener or the caretaker, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you have put him and I will go and get him. <laughs> Never mind how I will do that. Just, I will go and get him. I will get him. Oh, what love. This is Mary. Don't you love her heart? She didn't want anyone to hurt him in life. And she didn't want anyone to mess around with him in his death. Just tell me where he is. This is awful enough having to go through all of that. Not only his death, but now where is his body? This is awful. Mary. Mary, Jesus said. It's the tone. It's the tone. It's the love and the word. 
She's heard it before. Her name, Mary, expressed by the Savior, the Lord. She recognized him by his voice. Oh, it's not a rebuke by Jesus. No, it's love returned, Mary. Look, look, I'm back. I'm alive. I'm here. I'm here. She was so taken back, so surprised, so joyful. What are the right words? So overwhelmed. Rabboni, teacher. What do you want to do when you have that relationship? Oh, just hug him. Just do something. Remember the Korean pastor who was held captive in North Korea? And when he returned to Toronto, he was hugged and mobbed by his family, overwhelmed. He's back. He's alive. They called him a rock star. and He was so popular. And his time in Korea, he said, actually strengthened him in his faith journey. Maybe she just hugged him so hard, like, I'm never letting you go again. And Jesus says, you'll have to let me go. You'll have to let me go. Things would be different, will be different. Because his relationship with his followers would change. He would ascend to the Father, and Mary's physical clinging would have to give way to another kind of bond. It would be a relationship of faith. It would be different. Mary, he says. And there was something about the sound of his voice, something about the mention of his name that opened her, the eyes of her heart, that it was him. Rabboni, she says. It's, it's a term of affectionate respect. And suddenly she has a reason to believe. Now, friends, what really got her attention? It's, it's not enough for Mary simply to confront the evidence of the resurrection. The empty tomb... The angel's announcement. And that wasn't enough to convince her. It didn't register. She needed something more personal than that. She needed a real encounter with Jesus. And we need the same thing. Those of us who struggle with the resurrection. Oh yes, we need evidence. And there's plenty. An empty tomb. Written records, biblical records, non-biblical records. The transformation of the disciples, the emergence of a brand new faith, the great divide in human history, B.C. and A.D., the changed lives of people that you know around the world. But we also need something more personal, something experiential. We need to hear, can, can. You see, it's different. It's just different when you hear your name. You can hear lots of facts. Facts are good. You can research lots of information. Research is good. But when you hear your name, it's just different. It's just different. He may say, Ken. He may say, don't be afraid. He may say, I love you. He may say, I'm here. I don't know what he will say to you. But he's a personal God. And if you don't sense that you've heard him, just ask him, Lord, I want you to, I want you to, I want to hear you. I, I open my heart to hear you. And maybe if you're in defensive posture about this, you ought to just open your arms. More importantly, open your heart and say, I'm open. I'm ready. 
Lord, I want to hear you. And as we gather around the Lord's table, what a wonderful place this morning to hear your name. What a wonderful place this morning around the table to hear your name. We invite you to take a small piece of bread and a small cup of juice as a way of reflecting upon the events of the cross and the resurrection. The bread means the body of Jesus, which was broken and bruised. The cup means the blood that came forth from his body that saves us and forgives us. And so as we focus on the resurrection, we're mindful that it followed the crucifixion. The tragedy is, yes, that he died, but the hope is that he lives and he's no longer in the grave and he calls our name. Give thanks in your heart this Lord's day. And if you know the the risen Savior, come and give thanks and thank Him for His grace and thank Him for His forgiveness in your life. He wants to renew your heart even today. So quieten your heart in these moments and just listen for His quiet whisper as you worship. He says your name in love. He says your name in love. And if you're on a journey, you haven't quite arrived at a place of trusting Christ as your Savior and your leader, just please feel comfortable to allow the communion elements to pass. That's okay. Just allow the bread and the cup to pass. We're going to pray. We're going to give thanks. I'm going to invite the servers to come. uh, And uh, going to invite uh, someone to come and lead us in prayer. I'm not quite sure who that is, but... uh, Whoever knows, that will just come and pray. So if you're serving this morning, would you just come and, and uh, join us here at the table? Let's pray together. Our Holy Father, we come together in a service of remembrance. To remember that shortly after Jesus instituted this supper, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane to wrestle with you regarding what lay before him. And he made the deliberate choice, not my will, but your will be done. And so he freely offered himself up for us. And we remember that as we take the bread, which was given for us as you gave your life for us. We come also to remember that through his shed blood, we have the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. And we thank you for the pardon that we receive because he freely offered himself up for us. But we also gather together today in an act of anticipation, remembering that there will be another day when we gather together with the people of God around a great table. And it won't just be the community of TCC. It'll be people of every tribe, of every nation, of every language. And together, 
we will celebrate the marriage feast of the Lamb. Lord, we thank you. In his name we pray.